G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Taming Podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome back to the show. Today I'm chatting with Brett Stevens, former AFL footballer with the Fitzroy Lions and now performance coach for some professional athletes, having worked closely with the likes of Pete Sampras, Mark Villapousis and many more, which we'll unpack today, of course. So I'm excited for this opportunity to chat with you, Brett, and I'll give a little highlights reel um, in a moment to provide some more context for our listeners as to who you are and why you're someone I wanted to, uh, to connect with. But firstly, mate, thanks for making the time and, and joining me on the show for a chat today. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Liam. Um, yeah, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here and, and looking forward to having a good chat about uh, everything from mind to physical and, uh, and striving to give your best. That's it, mate. Absolutely. So we've had some fun chats off air, so I'm excited to, uh, to dive in. Uh, mate, firstly, on the football front, you started your career at Essendon under-19s and later the reserves, although you went on a, a nine-year journey, if I'm not mistaken, playing footy across multiple states uh, before joining Fitzroy and debuting in the, the VFL, AFL at the age of 26. You played a, a total of 133 senior games, learned a lot about resilience and determination, of course, uh, as well as the need to get the body and the mind right and these skills you took into your post-footy career as a coach traveling the world working on the professional tennis circuit i mentioned a couple of names there at the top um you worked at more than 80 grand slams and were involved in uh, more than 40 grand slam finals work with uh, world number one ranked players in singles and doubles including pete sampras of course i mentioned there uh, during the last five years of his career you work with the uh, zimbabwean davis cup team who beat australia in australia as the major underdogs uh, and so, mate, a like, pretty impressive resume. I could probably keep going, but I think where I want to start is those nine years of footy um, before ultimately getting a Guernsey with Fitzroy. What did that teach you? Uh, what were some of the lessons you took away from that experience? Well, you know, re- really, that, that journey set me up for life. And, uh, and I know recently you've had a podcast with Paul Roos. Now, I met Paul at 15 and... I was playing under-19s for Essendon and Paul was playing under-19s for uh, Fitzroy. And our journeys couldn't have been any more different. You know, he went on and I think he made his first, uh, played his first AFL game at 17 or 18. For me, it didn't quite work out that way. I had uh, three years at Essendon where I was uh, going in between the under-19s and reserves and, and didn't really get an opportunity to play in the senior team. Uh, but Essendon were, were definitely a very strong team there. Um, but I think my journey, although it was completely different to Paul's, I, uh, I look back on it now and it's funny how you can look back and see the path. Mm. It actually gave me the skills for my next job after football. And, and it did teach me resilience and, and how to understand how to try and get the best out of yourself. Um, so basically, 
my career started at Essendon in 1979. I had three three years there. Didn't make it in the senior team, and I'll try and I'll try and quicken this up a bit because it, it can be a long story. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I uh, once I got uh, I got cut at Essendon, and back then there wasn't any real sensitivity to uh, the feelings of the players. Right. I actually I actually got cut at at Essendon. I'd been there for three years, and then uh, we're in the middle of uh, a session, really, really hot day training session, and and everyone left except uh, you 15 guys, you can stay here and do a bit extra. So we did like, with these other guys, we did about uh, an extra 45 minutes training until everyone was gone and they called us all in and said, okay, you guys are cut. And wow. that's how they cut us. <laughs> and uh, so it was pretty brutal then, you know, mm. and it was, uh, I was like, okay, you go back, clean out your locker room, been there for three years and you're done. And, there's, and that was it. So, but luckily for me, I had... Um, a few offers come in from all over Australia, Western Australia, South Australia, Tassie. And, and in the end, I decided to go to Tasmania and uh, played my first full year of senior football over there. Even though it was a lower level, it was great to actually be playing in the senior team and had, had a, a solid year there um, playing in Hobart. The next uh, end of that year, I got invited to do the pre-season at Collingwood. Uh, I went and did the pre-season at Collingwood. Then one day you look up on the list and, okay, Brett Stevens cut. So then I got cut again. So then I went back and played another year in Tasmania. Um, played in a premiership side for Glen Orkey. It was, a, it was a fun year. It was a great year. But I still had that burning desire in me to get, to get back to play AFL. That's what I wanted to do, to play... Yeah. AFL football. That was my goal and my dream. Yeah. So I, um, end of that year, I got invited to do the pre-season with the Sydney Swans. Uh, ended up playing a couple of games in the reserves there on a permit. It was just a different system back then. And after a, a couple of games there in the reserves, I got cut from the Sydney Swans. I actually can't even remember how I got cut there, but I did yeah. <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. But, um, so then, you know, the dream was cut short again after doing the full pre-season, the training, making the full commitment and then not making it again. So then I, uh, I ended up playing half a season, the rest of that season in the VFA in, in Victoria for a club, uh, for a Paran football club. And at the end of that season, I had a mate, a couple of mates going over to Western Australia to play. And I said, oh, do you reckon you could see if I could go over there. So they said, yeah, they rang him and said, yeah, come along. So I went over there and I ended up playing for East Perth. It's funny how, you know, during that period, you know, I think a lot of guys would go off and sort of lose sight of their dream and their goal and think, well, that's gone. For me, I was, I was on a, a mission to keep improving and, and understanding my fitness and my diet, working on my game and my skill. And then the last piece of the puzzle for me was learning how to relax. And, mm. and that was the, that was the big thing that I needed to do. And, and, and one of my Achilles heel was that I wanted it too much and I was trying too hard. So I had to learn how to pull back, but I wasn't aware of that. And yeah. I went into season 1986 after winning the best and fairest of East Perth, having probably the best year of my career. And uh, after four or five games in, into the season, after doing a massive preseason, because I thought, okay, I'm 25 now. If I can, I've got to, do a huge pre-season, get myself in the best shape I possibly can, which I was trying to do along the way. And maybe I'll get an, a club will be interested at the end of this year if I can back up last year. And so 
that was my goal. I thought, okay, I'm going to go hard and hopefully someone will be interested. Although it would be slim at 26 that they would be interested in me. So I came out, best shape I've ever been in. And after four or five games, I couldn't get a kick. I was struggling. And, and uh, I actually got dropped out of the senior team. So the best and fairest on the year before was in the reserves in, in the WAFL. Yeah. And, you know, my dream of playing AFL football didn't look too great then. So, so anyway, that week I had, there was a sports psychologist at the club that had been watching a few players and I was one of them. And he came up to me and he said, listen, I've been watching you. The club's paid me to look at a few players and, and I know, I think I have an idea of what's going on with you. And, and I think, you know, you need to learn how to relax more. You need to take the edge off yourself because you don't need motivating. You're a motivated person, but but you need to let the game come to you a bit and, and not be so fired up before games and not listen to music to get you up, but listen to some music to bring you down and, and maybe crack a few jokes with your teammates, with your opponents, with the umpire, but try and find ways so you find that peripheral vision, not that tunnel vision. Yep. And he said, break all your routines. You know, this week I want you to go out, maybe have a beer on Friday night. You never do that, do you? And they go, no, 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 you're right. And just eat something different before the game. But don't think you have to have all these little little superstitions. Just let it all go and just get out there and play football on the weekend. So I actually got promoted back to the first that week. And I, I thought, okay, I'm going to try everything this guy said. And I went out that week and kicked eight goals and, and had wow. had a great game. And... And then for the rest of the year, I, I tried to keep going with that, with that um, idea of trying to have that relaxed intensity. And obviously, it, it was never perfect, yep. but I learned, learned to take the edge off myself. And, and right there was another step forward to me. And little did I realise that was sort of like the last piece of the puzzle that I had to learn. And so That's at the end of that year... Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, I was doing everything right and, and I was making these steps forward and physically, you know, when I was at Essendon, I was this skinny little kid. Now I'm 26 and I'm probably 10 to 15 kilos heavier in muscle. I understand my strengths and my weaknesses and endurance running was one of my major strengths that, you know, what held me back early in my career was they said I was too slow, but they didn't realize that I could go all day at the same pace. And Eventually, I learned how to use that as one of my strengths. And, and one of the great advantages of turning a, a negative into a positive, when I did get dropped into the second team at East Perth, I actually, they played me in the back line. I'd never played in the back line before. And I was running around and getting 30 or 40 possessions a game mm. because I'd never, I'd never really been able to use my true strength, which was, was my endurance. All of a sudden, there's a bit of interest in, like, they're showing more interest in me. And then, then uh, out of the blue, I get a phone call from the Fitzroy Football Club. And they, and they said, look, we've been watching you play. You know, we, we'd love to sign you and have you play for us this year. And, 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 you know, I was like, I was a bit blown away. I thought, oh, wow, you know, the club actually wants to sign me and put me on their list. So I went to Essendon and I said, look, this is what's happened. You know, my dream is to play one AFL game. And Fitzroy have pretty much guaranteed me if I keep going with the form I've got that they'll play me in the first game of the year for Fitzroy. Now, now Essendon said, look, we, they actually said, we want to have you on our list. So now we've got two clubs want me on their list. Um, but they couldn't guarantee me that 
I would fit into their senior team. Mm. So Essendon were quite, Kevin Sheedy was coaching there. He was great about it. He said, look, we can't match that offer. It's a great offer for you. You should try and take that offer. So I went to Fitzroy and uh, signed with Fitzroy and, and ran out at the MCG in first game 1987 against Melbourne and, and played my first AFL game. And, you know, ran, ran on the ground. I couldn't even actually believe it. I was like, I was so blown away that I'd actually did it. And, and that was my dream, was to get the one game. Did you and find that um, after that moment was even more surreal and, and, and euphoric, I suppose, given your story to get there, putting in the work, the setback? Did you find that moment for you when it finally came was, was, was pretty special off the back of putting in the work and, and overcoming those setbacks? Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was probably surreal, you know, pretty surreal. And, and, and even then, I probably... It's funny, even then, I was more, um, instead of being proud of taking so long to get there, I was more embarrassed, yeah, right? right? in some ways. <laughs> yeah. I was more like, oh, I'm playing with all these guys. They haven't gone through what I've gone through. And, you know, some of the jokes that used to go around about me were, you know, he's had more clubs than Jack Nicholas, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, I'd laugh. And, but instead of being proud of that journey, I was, I was a little bit, I sort of kept it to myself a bit, but, Sure. Inside, I was, um, look, to run out and play that game. And that was my goal in the end. I kept saying, I just want to play one AFL game. And, and in the end, you know, I ended up going on from there and playing 130-odd and, and mm. playing for Australia against Ireland and playing, being runner-up in the BNF a couple of times. I think I was in the top, top four or five, five years out of the seven years I played for Fitzroy and uh, ended up being one of the one of the uh, top players at the club. And, and I, I suppose it's uh, like when, and what little, little did I realize what it was training me for that whole journey. And, and a lot of the things that I talk to the athletes I talk to and, and, it, and now, you know, I spent 20 years in the tennis tour, but now I talk to golfers and surfers and skiers, snowboarders, skateboarders. I've got a whole bunch of different athletes that I talk to. Um, and one of the things I always start off with is, you know, anything's possible. And, but it's not going to be handed to you on a platter. And you've got to work on ways to understand how to give yourself the best chance to be the best you can be. So, so really, it was like, it was like my um, university degree in understanding how to try and get the best out of yourself and, and then working out what's your formula. How can you be the best you can be? I love that. You mentioned the, uh, the idea of potentially having to relax a little bit. And it's funny, I feel like I can relate to that. I'm sure people listening might be able to as well when you just want it so bad. And I imagine, and I'll let you speak for yourself, but having worked with you know, professional athletes in different fields, when they get to that level, you know, everyone can play. Everyone clearly wants it. it. The key is going to be the mindset that separates them. I think we were talking about that off air the other day, how mindset is the separator and could be different things for different people. But have you found just on that, that relaxing part, have you found that that's often a part where people fall down with some of the people you work with is they're trying too hard and they want it so bad. And um, that funnily enough, you know, almost paradoxically can, can have a negative effect with them. Yeah. Look, professional sport is a, it's a tough environment and it's, it's really is. And, and I talked to a lot of the athletes when we first talk about, you know, 
you've got to understand that, that at the elite level, everyone can play. Everyone can give their bet. You know, every, everyone is at a certain level. They wouldn't, like in golf and tennis, which are real technical games, mm. you can't get to a certain level unless you can really play. Right. But in the end, the rankings are pretty much mental rankings. It's, it's people who can understand what their process is and what helps them be their best. And, and I like to look at it like, you know, professional sport, your career is going to be decided on how you deal with adversity and how you deal with negativity. And one of the things I like to do is like when the first negative thing happens to you, what are you going to do? Are you going to use that as a, as a motivation to be more determined? Or are you going to use that as something that, that makes you turn into a victim and become more negative? So I'm always trying to go down the path of, okay, the first test today is going to be when you miss that first green or, or you don't make that first, that, or you, you break serve early in, your serve's broken early in the match and you, and you don't respond to that. So the athletes I work with, I go, today's going to be decided on how you deal with the negativity and adversity and what are you going to do? You're going to become a victim or you're going to become more determined. And one of the things I like to say with all my athletes is, okay, in, in training, especially in, in technical sports like golf and tennis, it's all about striving for excellence when, when, when you're on the practice fairway, when you're on the practice court. You're trying for the perfect shot. Although perfection is a negative um, perspective. We're, n- we're not looking for perfection, but we're striving for excellence. Yeah. So that's the professional golfer. That's the professional tennis player. So you've got that hat on then. But when it comes to competing, when you're on the first tee on Thursday, you've got to take that professional golfer's hat off and you've got to put on the, pr- the professional competitor's hat on. You've got to put on the competitor's hat. And the competitor, he's not looking for perfection. He, he's not worried about making mistakes. He's using negatives as motivation to be more positive. And, and he's trying to be his own best friend. And, and, and then in the end, he's not focusing on the result. He's focusing on the effort. So his expectation every time he goes out is to focus on the expectation. And by doing that, you then, if you can be consistent with that, you can then start to build this mental foundation that helps you deal with any situation. But the biggest problem is trying to stay positive when you don't get the result. And, and I've had this conversation with a few guys where, you, you know, they're like, oh, man, I'm, you know, I'm trying so hard. I'm, I'm doing what we're talking about, but I'm not getting the result. And, you know, I'm a result-driven person. And, you know, it's like I can't be happy with not getting the result. And I'm like, listen, I don't expect you to be happy with not getting the result, but the best chance for you to have the result is focus on your effort. And if you continually keep giving your effort, you're that good that you'll be able to, you'll collect when it's your time to collect, when the putts drop, when the bounces start to go your way. And so you, you can't have this up and down attitude where one week it's good, one week it's bad. You've got to try and create this consistency in your effort and then eventually you'll get rewarded. But the problem with professional sport is a lot of times your best isn't good enough. So, and you can get beaten when you've given your best. And that's hard to take, but you've got to understand that's all part of the journey. So it it's been able to under, understand all the little boxes you have to tick to give, to give your best. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you think about um, you know, the separator being 
that perspective you have on your approach. Like at, at a certain level, everyone can play, obviously. Um, and, you know, I, I imagine it's easy to look, it's easy to see on TV some of the professional athletes and whatever field it's in. We see the highlights real and the accolades. Um, but if you think about it logically, it's, it's almost impossible to go through a you know, 10, 15, 20 year career without, without having some sort of challenges, whether it's injuries or you know, a form slump or whatever it is. It, it almost just makes sense uh, that the difference is going to be how you do respond. So I love that you, I love that you have that perspective and I can see how, you know, if you can train, help people train their own psychology to see things that way to go, okay, how can I not get thrown off my game when something goes wrong? and your opponent um, potentially can't manage that the same way, that is going to be the separator. And I can see how that would make a massive difference to, to your game, whether it's golf, tennis, you know, surfing, whatever it is. Well, it's, and the thing is, it's, uh, it's funny when you look at professional sport. So if you, if you go to the, out, the, out, the, the courts at the tennis and you watch certain plays, you'll see, and, and this is the biggest conundrum for professional athletes because they've got to be so hard on themselves to get to that level, mm. but then they've got to be kind to themselves to be able to get the best out of themselves. And, and if you go to any tennis court at the Australian Open, if you go to the golf or whatever, you'll see a lot of more athletes than not being tough on themselves, being hard on themselves, being critical on themselves. But for me in tennis, it's, it's like there's two shining lights at the moment. You know, there's Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. Yep. And their attitudes stand out like beacons to me. I mean, really you, can't tell, you can't tell whether they're winning or losing, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't know the score. So it's funny how, why wouldn't all the other players be copying them, you know? Right. But the reason they're not all doing that is because it's not easy to do. It's not easy to stay positive when things aren't going your way. It's not easy to, to like use negatives to trigger uh, positive reactions. Yeah. And, and that's, what, that's what makes professional sports so tough. And, and it's, it's the same in life. You know? It's not easy to, to pick yourself back up and start again when something bad happens to you. But really, in the end, there's two choices. Do you sink or swim? And I think there's only one choice that you would want to take and that's swimming. But, but that doesn't mean you got to, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to come easy. You definitely have to understand how to keep getting up and keep giving your best when things aren't going your way. But eventually it'll turn around in anything, whether it's at work, whether it's, whether it's with an injury, whether, whatever it is, if you keep trying to evolve and try and understand what you need to do to get better then eventually you'll overcome whatever it is. Yeah, I love that. So then I mentioned at the top there, your time on the tennis circuit. How did that come about, Brett? How did, that, how did you go from, you know, you finished your footy career, obviously. Uh, was that an immediate transition into performance coaching? Like, what did that process look like? Yeah, it was, you know, it was more by accident than anything. I, I got to know a few, a few tennis players on the tour um, during my playing days. And there was a, a, we had a trainer at our club was a, was involved in the tennis and, and I did a couple of pre-seasons with a few players and just, and they joined in with my training when I wasn't at the club. And, and I, at the end of my career, uh, Wally Masur was at the U S open. I actually pretty much flew out three days after the end of my career and, uh, went straight to the U S open and, and I was clueless on what was going on. I was 32 years old and I was pretty green as far as travels 
going. You know, I'd just done the, the basic football trips to Hawaii and onto the mainland of the US, but n- not really worldly, you know, just mm. a couple of weeks and then back to Australia. So I was really green at the first US Open. It was, you know, Wally, Wally sort of, um, you know, he goes, oh, Moose, go and get yourself a massage. You can get free massages in the, in the <laughs> players' training room. So I go, oh, can I? And they go, yeah, going. So I'd be over there on the massage table, which were for players only, and they were having a great old <laughs> laugh about it, you know. And I just fresh from my AFL career, but um, no, I had a real blast. And Wally ended up making the semi-finals of the U.S. Open that year, which was one of his biggest results. It was nothing to do with me. I was as green as they come. <laughs> um, I'm sure you helped, but yeah, but but little did I realise that you know I didn't really understand what my job was but I was basically just training guys trying to get them in the best shape but but also I was talking to them mentally about how you know keeping them motivated and keeping them going you know yeah. and then and while he made the semis there and after the semis said come on Moose you're going to come to oh that's my nickname by the way Moose yes I, I did said, know. come on mate yeah <laughs> you're going to you're going to come to uh you're going to come to Europe with me um, I want you to come to Europe and keep me training hard and on the diet. And, and so I ended up going to Europe with him and, uh, and he had his coach there as well. And, and he had, he did pretty well. And then, then after that, we ended up going back to Florida and I ended up in uh, Boca Raton in the States and at a, an academy run by uh, Robert Seguso and uh, his wife, oh, what was his wife's name? Um, Seguso Bassett, yeah, uh, Carleen Bassett. So they had an academy there that I went back and I actually was running the whole academy at one stage, not, not knowing anything about tennis, <laughs> but only knowing about discipline and what it is to give you best. So I had the, all these American kids were like on the tennis court and then I'd see someone throw their racket. I go, okay, racket's down, we're going for a run. And I'd run them out for a mile, run them back for a mile. I go, okay, if I see another racket go, we're off again. And the racket stopped hitting the ground. And even though I didn't realize none of the kids really understood my accent, you know, I was using words like fair income and, and the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But um, I didn't realize till years later that fair income wasn't an American word. <laughs> <laughs> but um, from there, it just sort of evolved. And then I had a few, a few younger guys ask me to go on the road. And then um, I, uh, I, the guy, Sandon Stolly, I ended up traveling with him. He was the first guy I really traveled with for a long time. We had uh, four or five years traveling together. And he came to me, I think when he came to me, he was ranked about 350 in the world and in singles. And, and he had around a, a, a top 100 or around 100 doubles ranking. And, and he, he came to me and said, look, you know, can you do some work with me? He said, I'm, I'm, look, I'll just concentrate on doubles. And I said, well, I'm not interested if you... You only want to play doubles. He said, oh, no, no, I want to play singles. I said, well, let's go for your singles. So, so in the end, we, um, he, he decided to commit to his singles and have a go. And he ended up going from uh, getting his career high singles ranking of around about 50. Mm. And uh, he ended up winning a grand slam in doubles. And I think he was in the top three or four in the world in doubles. But, but even that, that was sort of like the first journey and, and some of the great experiences I had with him. And, and that's, just digressing a little bit, that goes back to me as far as my philosophy on it's not about the result. It's not about even being number one. It's about being the best you can be. And to me, if you can do that, you're as good as any number one. Um, 
because I, I think I've looked at, I've worked with some number ones in the world and I think they could have been better. So, interesting. you know, so it's, I don't base, base it around win or loss. I don't base it around being number one. I base it around understanding how to give your best. And if you can do that, you walk away a champion. You do. You you sort of know when you've given your effort and the times that you have, and this is just speaking from my own sort of experience and my mini sporty career, I suppose, and you can attest to this, I reckon when you do give your best and you know it, you feel like a rock star. Um, And when you don't, even if you get the accolades, you sort of know you've left something in the tank. So it's it's a good point. I I think um, really important take-home message, isn't it? To to realise, okay, giving your effort, focusing on the process and being the best you can be, you know, the byproduct of that is you do, you feel amazing knowing that you've given it your all. Yeah, you do. And yeah, I mean, if you don't get the result, you don't feel great. But you know, if I walked away from a game of football and I knew I'd given everything, I was disappointed that we lost, but I, I could look, look in, look in the mirror and go, you know what? I did everything I could do. Mm. And, and one of the, look, one of the great, great, one of the great moments. And, and this was where, you know, my career on the tennis field, people say, Oh, you work with, Pete Sampras and Mark Philippoussis, but I work with a lot of guys from different countries, all with different stories. And to some guys, making the just making the main draw at Wimbledon was like winning Wimbledon. You know, yeah. some guys making the second or third round was like there. That was an unbelievable moment for them. And one of the stories with Sandon, who was one of the first guys who I think I had a real impact on, was we we'd been travelling through Europe, and I've been you know been on this my my um, training with him, we've been going hard in the training, but I was big on the attitude about understanding how to give your best and not giving up. And I felt like we're having moments where he was getting it and then he wasn't. And then he's been hardening himself. And we got to a, a tennis match in Dubai and we'd just come from Germany and it'd been cold. And, and we, it was the first tournament in the Middle East. And we get to the, we get to the tournament and Sandon's in the qualifying. So you have to get through three rounds of qualifying to get to the main draw. So he wins his first match, um, a pretty good match. Comes out in the second round and he wins, he wins the match 6-2, 6-2. And he walks off the court waiting for me to give him a high five. And, you know, high fives were still big back then. Um, and uh, I go, mate, I can't do this anymore. And he's like, what do you mean? I just won 6-2, 6-2. I said... Yeah, but you're not understanding what I'm saying. You know, your effort was terrible. Like you were, you won two and two because you're a more talented player than that guy. But that doesn't mean you're the best. I actually think he was better than you because he his attitude was better. I said you were throwing your racket and you'd win a point, you were happy. You'd lose a point, you were down. I said you can't have success with that. And sure, you can beat someone like this guy because you're more talented. And I said I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And he's like, oh, well, what do you mean? And I, I said, listen, all right, I'll give you one more match. You, you show me that you're committed to being a great competitor and we'll keep working together. But if not, I, I'm done because I, I feel like I've been with you three or four months now. And if you're not getting the message, it's probably time for me to move on. So at that stage, he was still ranked about 300, 250, 300 in the world. He came in, he was in the last round of qualifying, so he had to qualify to make the main draw. He comes out and he plays a Russian guy, Cherkasov, who was a real grinder. And they have like a three to four hour match, unbelievable match, and he loses 7-6 in the third. And I'm like, Sandon, 
that is the best match I've ever seen you play. I mean, I had goosebumps watching the match. I said, I'm so proud of your effort. And, and I said, if you keep doing this, you're, you're going to have a singles career and things are going to go your way. You're going to get your luck. And he's like, well, yeah, I was so lucky. I could have, if I won that point, I could have won the match. I go, mate, you've just got to keep going down this path and you'll have success. So then lucky enough for Sandon, he, was, he ended up getting into the tournament as a lucky loser. So if someone pulled out injured, you can get in if, you, if you're in the last round of qualies. He got in as a lucky loser. He, he was playing the world number one, Thomas Muster, in the first round. And he ended up beating the number one in the world, 7-6 in the third. And ended up making the quarterfinals, having the biggest biggest uh, result of his singles career. And then after that, made the semis a few weeks later. And by the end of the year, he was in the top 100 and, and went on to get into the top 50 in the world in singles. But that was like a turning moment for him right there where he finally saw what he needed to do and understood what he needed to do. And, and sure, there were still moments where, you know, you would slip back a bit and you'd have to have some reminders. But basically from then... He was committed to being a great competitor and keep giving his best. So for me, those experiences I'll never forget. You know, just as, you know, lucky enough to sit in the box and watch Pete Sampras win Wimbledon. To me, those moments were just as big as those moments. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Obviously, Pete Sampras, Mark Selpris are some of the names we know. A couple others you mentioned there as well. You clearly work with, you know, and I can imagine a whole host of other people in different sports. You've worked with a lot of pro athletes now. Are there, are there certain commonalities that you've found among some of these high performers? So obviously, you come in and, and you work with them, which we'll, we'll talk about that process a little more in a moment. But um, is there something that you've noticed uh, sort of in addition to that, to that mindset, I suppose, that everyone has in common? Is it a, is it a hunger thing? Is it, is it the way they approach their diet or their training? Yeah, there, are there certain commonalities that you've found throughout that process? I, I, think, it's, I think it's more... The best guys are the guys who eventually have a full understanding of what they're trying to do. So, and, and for me, in the end, that's what it is to be a great competitor. You, you understand that, you know, you, the boxes you need to tick. So, for me, I'm big on, number one, you've got to be mentally fresh. And number one, you've got to be physically healthy to be able to go out and give your best. Mm. And, and what is it to be mentally fresh? You know, and un- so understanding to have the right amount of sleep, understanding not to waste energy on, on other things, whether it's, you know, and nowadays there's more challenges with the social media and, and other distractions. Yeah. But basically, for you to be able to give your best, your mind has to be clear. Your head has to be clear. And then you're a, you're a bigger chance of having that peripheral vision and not that tunnel vision where I must win, I must win, I must do this. But if you, if you can create that peripheral vision where you can see the big picture, you can see everything going on and you're stepping up there and you go, okay, this is great. This is another chance for me to go out and give my best again today. And, and then ticking those little boxes that make a difference. Like you, uh, most people would see a game of tennis and they, and they might see a player sitting down eating a banana during the break and you'll have some of the banana every break. Well, one of the things that actually affects you when you're playing sport, it's not so much the physical that they're eating that banana, it's to keep topping up their energy levels. So, because the first thing that gets affected when their energy levels drop is their brain. Yep. So then you start to feel a, bit, a little bit of negative. 
a bit of a negative mindset sets in. So you've got to keep topping up your fuel and that, that will keep your brain more active and being able to make better decisions. And so, and, and the rest aspect, I'm huge on the rest. You know, a lot of times you talk about, you know, Pete Sampras might play a, a five set match and he's got to get up for another match in, in the next day or in two days time. You've got to get in there and, and, take care of your recovery as quick as you can and get out of there, get your press done and get out of there and get back to your hotel and put your feet up and rest and not be focusing on tennis so much, but just watch a movie or read a book, but have some proper rest so you can give your brain a breather and, and you can get ready for that next challenge because you've got to be ready to go to work and, and you've got to be ready to be able to get out there and, and deal with the negative situations with a clear head. So the rest and the recovery is huge and the understanding of, of what's important is huge as well. I love it. Yeah, that clarity is power, just knowing what it is you're actually trying to, to trying to do. Just on the rest thing, um, I read an anecdote a little while back, and I, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but it sounds like from what you've, what you've just been sharing, there might be. I read somewhere that a big determinant of who wins a game of tennis is, is how well you recover between points. So I imagine to, to that point of rest, whether that's you know um, allowing your body and your brain, and obviously as a result your mindset to refuel and, and reset, would be a big part of it. And I notice you know guys like Federer, Nadal, you know obviously they're always up and about when they have it when they're when they're on. But when they are, um, you know, when they're sitting down in between points or in between sets, they do look calm. They look like they're rejuvenating vis a vis someone who's you know sort of jumping around and, and frantic and burning unnecessary energy. Is that any truth to that it's that it's sort of in between points how well you can um recover oh yeah for sure for sure like um for example andre agassi one of his big tactics was to actually make some points longer so to wear down his opponents and okay. and then and then step up to the line quickly and serve so they hadn't fully recovered from the point before so sometimes he would actually instead of when he had a chance to hit a winner and, and, and quite a few players have done this where they'll extend the point and make the guy run a little bit longer and then, then start getting to the line and serving a lot quicker. So, you know, being a, being the best competitor you can be, there's a lot of little aspects that come into it and, and it is being able to make smart decisions. It's like if I was playing you, Liam, in a game of tennis and I know you play a little bit, you know, I'm not going to just step up there and, and not take notice of what you're doing. You know, mm. I'm going to say, oh, geez, his backhand's not that good. I'm going to serve to his backhand. And, oh, he's, you know, he's serving. He can only serve to my forehand. I'm going to get out there and wait for it and see if he can serve one down the tee. Or if my game, you know, if my game's not on, you know, some days my game's on and I'm hitting the lines, I'm flushing the lines, but other days... I need to give myself more margin for error. So instead of going for the line, I'll, I'll give myself like a meter that I can aim for instead of that, that smaller target. Or I'm not making my first serves. I need to start rolling my first serve in a bit more. Yeah. So it, it doesn't mean you're not playing aggressive, but you're playing aggressive with more margin for error. So, you know, if your mind's fresh yep. and your energy levels are up, your fitness level's good, and, and you have an understanding of how you're trying to, what you're trying to do when you go on the court. You know, mm. it's not just about, and this is the tough, this is the conundrum for technical sport athletes is, you know, you train so hard to get the perfect shot and you want the perfect feel, but you have to let that go when it comes to competing. 
you have to work with what you've got on the day. Mm. And that's what the great competitors do. They work out a way to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So have you found that some of the stuff that you work with on, with these players are parallels that can be drawn into everyday life? So whether it's, you know, people listening, they might be stuck at their job or whatever it might be. Is it, you know, having this clarity and, and having that freshness by looking after your body and mind to then be self-aware enough to go, okay, this isn't working or um, this is working. I should do more of this. The same way we do on a tennis court, you know, like you mentioned there, picking up on, okay, the backhand for that my opponent's like, let me sort of, let me focus on that area. And you're only able to do that if you've, you know, if you've got the right physiology and, and um, right mindset as well to pick, it, pick up those cues in the moment. Have you found there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn to sort of everyday life from um, the work you do in sport? Oh, 100%. I, you know, I think um, sport is definitely a parallel to life. Uh, mm. The only thing in sport is there's a way more negative things happening. And, you know, pretty much everyone's a loser in sport you know roger federer has won 20 grand slams how many has he lost you know and maybe 40 maybe 50 you know mm. so he's walked away a loser from grand slams 50 times yeah i'm not sure how many he's played but everyone's a loser in professional sport but it's how you deal with that negativity and adversity and in you know as as a worker whether you're a ceo of a company or you're an employee or whatever you've got to work out how can I be the most productive? Now, am I productive if I'm getting there at seven in the morning and working till seven at night and then going home and not having much sleep and then coming back the next day? The quality, the quantity sounds good, but quality is, for me, is more important than quantity. And you might, you might, if you cut your hours down to maybe eight hours a day instead of 12 hours a day, you might have eight hours of great quality instead of the 12 hours of quantity where you might not even be getting as much done. And so, and, 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 you know, and I think a combination of a healthy lifestyle as far as rest, you know, some exercise and putting the right foods in your body and, and eating and drinking during the day at the right times is going to help you perform better a hundred percent. And that's how, you know, if I was working with, um, with corporates that's what i'd be doing too i'd be treating each day as a challenge to go and give your best again and not try to take shortcuts and and understand that it really is at the end of the day you want to walk away proud of what what you've been doing and proud of your efforts yeah yeah completely um marissa what i wanted to throw at you mate and get your thoughts on was sort of this chat around identity i'm just talking with a few people i've had on the show recently and even just chats i have off air and sort of just relating to my own story to an extent, um, I find that people can get stuck in, in how they view themselves. So have you ever had any situations where you, where you connect with a professional athlete, again, whatever sport it's in, and that, have, you, have you found that sometimes they're stuck by how they view themselves for whatever reason? Could be, you know, it could be a whole host of reasons as to why that's the case. But um, have you found that the people's identity of themselves can hold them back? And, and then if so, how do you go about shifting that? Because I've found from my own experience, that's and both in my own life and, chats i've had with people that that can be can be a tough one when you see yourself as you know i'm i'm not an athlete or i'm not a champion i'm not elite yet they're trying so hard to you know get to that top level um how do you kind of how do you navigate through that i think it's you know a, a lot of athletes that i start with i probably wouldn't have a job if everyone was feeling good and great <laughs> about themselves you know but there's I, I work with a couple of surfers and 
And I've heard it so many times where the athletes start to become victims, you know, right. because they like, oh, you know, this happened. I was bad luck there. I was unlucky there. And, and I'm not getting the results. And, and a lot of times I start the conversation, if I'm talking to someone for the first time, I go, well, okay, so tell me, you know, what's your problem? And now I'm sort of getting to the stage where I go, okay, now I'll tell you what the problem is and you tell me if I'm right, you know, and I'm going, you know, you're feeling like you're lacking belief. You're feeling negative. You're feeling nervous before events. You, you feel like the whole world's against you. And they go, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I go, well, fine. So what's your problem? Everyone has those feelings. What's your problem? And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, that's how every athlete feels going out to the first tee or, or paddling out for a heat or running out for a game of football. There's nerves. There's lack of belief. There's, there's feelings of, oh, man, I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough. They're, they're all things that are floating around in your head, but, but they're not actually real. You know, it's, it's, it's way easier to go down the negative path and be hard on yourself instead of looking at the positives in your life and knowing that even if things are at their lowest ebb, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. And you just got to work out how to get back on the positive path. And it's not easy, but just a simple thing of even doing some sort of exercise and, and taking care of your diet can have a real positive impact on who you are. Absolutely. But but I look, I've spoken to so many people who, who've told me that they, they feel like they're a failure. And I'm talking about athletes who are finished with their careers. And then once I sit down and I point out to them that, hang on, why are you a failure? You know, I, I could actually look at my career and instead of looking at the journey and the nine-year journey to get there, you know, I could say, well, man, I was a failure. You know, Essendon won two flags while I was one while I was there and another one after I was there, I could have been part of that. You know, I didn't win a Brownlow, although one year I was only 15 votes off winning it, which I feel like I was ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I didn't win a Brownlow. I didn't, I didn't win a best and fairest at Fitzroy, although I was close a couple of times. I, I didn't play in the premiership side at, at Fitzroy, you know, but am I a failure? You know, and I could look at that and say, oh man, I'm whatever. But I know that I gave my best. And I know that, you know, even though I, I, I don't go down in the hall of fame, I don't really care. I, and, and I don't even, and I look at that like, I'm so proud of what I did and how I went about it. That's what it's all about. And I, f I find it interesting, you know, it's funny how, look, as human beings, we want to be comfortable. You know, like I'm sure you're sitting, you're not sitting on a seat with nails in it, Liam. I'm sure, I'm sure you're sitting there, you're comfortable yep. and we want to be comfortable. We want to sit in a comfortable chair. We want to, we, we want to eat food that we like to eat. So when negative things happen to us, we don't like it and, and we can go down that path of becoming a victim. But on the other hand, it's more like, okay, I don't feel good about this or I'm not happy with that. How can I rectify it? How can I find a solution and how can I better myself? And, and pretty much that's the journey in the end is it doesn't matter whether you're a professional athlete. I, I find it, I find it almost, it's funny uh, after the years and years of working with athletes and, you know, a lot of times it's decided on winning and losing. I, I don't like that winning and losing i i find losing you know what is losing what what's a loss 
you know, and, and I talk to a lot of athletes. I go, mate, you didn't win the match. The score didn't come out the way you wanted, but it's only a loss if you don't learn from it. And I, I, I like that thought of challenging yourself to deal with negativity and, and using losses as a great learning experience. Absolutely. Absolutely, mate. It's all, I must say, we, we connected, what, a week or so ago and we've had a couple of chats off there and then, of course, today. Mate, I really like your approach. You know, there's some, there's some real uh, takeaway messages that, you know, implemented the right way will have a massive impact, whether it's you know, in your sporting career or life, whatever it might be. Um, but then having that kind of relaxed, fun approach, I don't know, like, there's something that I, I, I feel better even just having this conversation. I know, I know listeners will as well. So I think there's a lot of takeaways, um, but I've got a couple of fun ones before I let you go, mate. And um, I feel like I can riff on this for hours with you. It's always, it's always really interesting. Um, but just on the golf front, you're working with some professional golfers. We know now um, for the average punter, mate. So look, oh, I can swing it. I can swing a stick, but I'm no good. Um, uh, what, what are some key pointers from a psychological point of view? Um, Cause I feel like golf for me is one of those ones where I just, I don't seem to get early wins. You know, footy picked up pretty early. I was always okay. And I feel like I had disproportional gains with the effort I put in. But golf, I don't know what it is. It, it feels like a psychological um, uh, setback, I suppose. So for the every, everyday punter, mate, what, what are one or two tips that will help our golf game? Well, you know, honestly, I think golf is the toughest mental sport in the world. Because, because you have so much time between shots and you have so much time to think about it. So you can imagine you're frustrated as an amateur playing golf. So you can imagine the pressure on, on the professionals. Right. You know, where, you know, one shot can be the difference between 100 grand and 200 grand. Or, you know, missing, missing a tiny putt can be the difference between a top 20 finish or a top 10 finish, which could mm. maybe wrap up your card for the next year. So... It really is simplifying it and trying to, like I said, focus on your effort over the result. And for example, um, Tiger Woods, there's um, Jordan Spieth a few weeks ago did a podcast and he was talking about Tiger Woods. And he actually said, I've played so many tournaments with Tiger and I've never, I've seen him hit so many great shots and I've seen him hit a few bad shots, which were still pretty good. But I've never seen Tiger be negative. I've always seen Tiger, when he hits a bad shot, it's all like, oh, come on, Tiger. Come on, you're better than that. I always saw him be positive about his mistakes. And he would walk up to his next shot and then, okay, that last shot wasn't so great, but this one's going to be better. And I'm going to, I'm going to try and do my process, try and give it my best. And then away he would go. So instead of, and Spieth was saying that he, he was going down the path being too negative on himself, Tiger was going down a positive path. So the, the thing is, you just got to focus on each shot. And as far as, okay, I'm just going to give my best again. And I'm not going to get brought down. And, it, it is, and that's the beauty of golf. It is a great game to practice the, those life yeah. sort of learnings where you can go, okay, that's fine. I've hit a bad shot. I get a chance to rectify it on the next shot so transcending into all areas of life and obviously in sport it's easy to see for me mate i'm going to start using that approach but i think i might start with focusing on a six putt and then kind of work my way down what do you reckon yeah well that's that's probably a good idea mate that's probably a good idea but you know it's funny that one of the i've worked with this uh 
guy who's on the PGA in the States. And uh, I took him for his first game of golf down here. He came and spent a bit of time with us. And um, we hadn't played any golf. And he goes, come on, Moose, let's go and have a game. So I took him to St. Andrews Beach Golf Course. And I said, mate, I don't, I don't play that much. I haven't played for a while. And he goes, no, nah, it's okay. I'm not worried. So we get out there and, and I, I hit my first tee shot straight down the middle. I haven't played for ages. And he's like, gee, I didn't expect you to be that good, Moose. And I said, no, nah, neither did I. I didn't, didn't think I'd be that good. So anyway, I get up to the next shot. It's a par five. Smack a three wood. I, I really hit, hit it well. And I'm like, wow, I'm actually on fire here. <laughs> and then I, uh, my next shot I hit to the green. I'm within about 40, 40 foot of the flag. And I had this old, I, I played with this old wooden hickory putter. And I've been saying to him all week, I said, mate, if we ever play, you see this putter here, it never misses. I stepped up to the 40 footer and hold it with my, uh, with my wooden putter. This is the first time I've ever played. So I ended up birdie in the first hole and he made a par. So I've, I've beaten a guy who's on the PGA tour. I said, mate, I'm done. That'll do me for the day. <laughs> and uh, he, wasn't, he hasn't been able to live that down. He's not real happy about that. But, no, um, I can't imagine he would be. You never know, mate. You keep giving your best. The sun might shine on your uh, uh, whatever you call it. I love it. Focus on the effort. Mate, it's a good place to wrap things up. I'll let you go. Really appreciate you coming out the time. Um, you know, again, we're talking off air. We'll stay connected. Um, and yeah, always good to chat, mate. I really appreciate it. A lot, a lot of value from this conversation. No, good on you, Liam. Good chatting to you. And um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, the main, main message, just keep it simple. Focus on your effort. It's, it's, and be, you know, be a good winner and be a good loser. That's what it's all about. And, and, and just, just keep it uncomplicated. But really, I think a, a big key to it too is having that relaxed intensity and not taking life too serious. I love that. Good on you, Moose. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come. And share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.